0: So a couple months ago, right here on the program, we unveiled something we're really excited about—a dream presidential platform based entirely on the best ideas economics has to offer. Robert, you want to do the honors? Sure.
1: Previously on Planet Money, six economists from across the political spectrum:
2: Dean Baker, Russ Roberts, uh, I'm Luigi Zingales. And he's left of center, hardcore affair.
1: free market,
3: pro market, but not necessarily pro business
1: thrown together with one impossible mission, to come up with an economic plan to rescue the economy. One catch, in order to save the country, they're going to have to work together. To restructure the tax code.
2: The the corporate income tax makes no sense whatsoever. Eliminate cherished deductions. The mortgage interest deduction. To preserve the environment.
0: Tax, energy use, or carbon emissions. And
1: finally, deal once and for all with the scourge of illegal drugs, make them legal. And maybe, just maybe, this ragtag team can come up with a platform that every economist would love and every presidential candidate would hate, except for our fake one.
2: God bless you, and God bless the United States of America.
0: Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm your announcer, Robert Smith. (laughs) That was awesome, by the way. Thank you. Today on the program, we are going to shatter that carefully constructed fiction from that previous podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, it was not all love and agreement like we made it seem. Today we're going to take it behind the scenes, show you all the fights, the crazy proposals, The stuff that got left out of our fake presidential platform.
1: The great thing about this project is I feel like we are recreating what actually happens in the world. As we brought these economists in, I felt like I was on a real political team, you know, where you ask all of the advisors and consultants, hey, what should we do? And they come up with some of these ideas and you're like, you can't say that stuff out loud. Like, (laughs) that is literally the craziest thing I've ever heard. We need to leave this one out.
0: Right. So we're going to hear the ideas that did not make it in. We're going to hear a couple of ideas that had one enthusiastic proponent and that pretty much no one else in the panel thought was a good idea. And we're going to hear one major battle, a pretty heated argument that I think sheds light on the current political landscape that forms sort of the ideological underpinnings for a lot of what President Obama and Mitt Romney are fighting about right now on the campaign trail.
1: Before we get to that major fight, let's start with some of the proposals that were just pretty strange. I mean, you think of economists as these sober voice of authority types, but they all have Their pet passions, their crazy ideas that they think just might work. And uh, nobody on our panel more than
0: Luigi Zingales. He is a conservative leaning economist. He works at the University of Chicago. And to give you an example of the kinds of ideas that are sort of tripping out of his brain, we were talking about US drug policy. And he was with the rest of the panel in arguing that light drugs like marijuana should be legal. But when it came to heroin, he was really on his own. He thought, okay, heroin. Keep it illegal for first-time users, but once you break the law, use it and get addicted. You get the drug free.
3: It's better this than uh, stealing and doing or, or, or selling drugs to finance my drugs. And the drug dealers will find it uh, very unprofitable to push the stuff because once you are hooked, you have an alternative. So,
0: so again, for the I'm just I'm just thinking about the campaign poster. Legalize marijuana, free heroin to every junkie. Yeah. <laughs> With certified junkie card. Come on. <laughs> no, I,
1: there is a no, reason I why I don't not, run for office. <laughs> <laughs> and no big surprise, there is no way that we could put this on a, uh, on a platform endorsed by Planet Money and economists everywhere. I just, I just pictured the T-shirts, the free heroin T-shirts and buttons and um, – it's not going to fly.
0: It's a tough sell even to his fellow economists. But that wasn't the only Luigi Zingale suggestion that got left on the cutting room floor. Luigi also has a, a favorite tax.
3: My favorite tax is actually that I propose in my book is a tax on lobbying. We know that lobbying is, is sort of uh, excessive. Uh, why not a progressive tax on lobbying?
1: <laughs> so, the bigger the corporation, the more lobbyists they hire, the more they uh, spend on these lavish dinners and lunches for politicians, they would have to pay m- more and more taxes based on that. Yeah.
3: I don't think that, I'm not a, a lawyer, but I don't think this runs against the First Amendment. So, uh, I think even the Supreme Court might say that this is okay.
1: <laughs> and, you know, there is something that is perversely attractive about this for economists because, you know, the whole idea of economics is you tax the things you want less of. And nobody has much love for lobbyists, you know? know, And and I think once you start to open the door of taxing people just because you hate them, I think a lot of economists would say, well, you know, there are, first of all, ways around that. And secondly, that really does target one group of people.
0: Yeah. But since this is sort of a pet theory of Luigi's and it hasn't gotten a widespread airing to the rest of the economic community, we, we decided, like... Give him some time, see if he can pitch it. But for now, we're going to leave it off the platform. Besides, we may have to hire a lobbyist for our candidate. <laughs> exactly. Now, another guy who had a lot of ideas that he sort of knew everybody wasn't going to agree with was Dean Baker. And one of the ones that he threw out when we were talking to him was also an idea for a tax that he wanted to implement.
2: And that that's a financial speculation tax, that uh, a modest tax on financial transactions, stock trades, bond trades, uh, derivatives, credit default swaps, whatever it might be, a very small tax on all these transactions could raise a huge amount of money and would basically, to my mind, be all for the good. Because if you have a small tax on these transactions and you end up discouraging some of them, that's really just fine because if it if it's a case that you know say a tax and give you an idea why I'm talking about uh, European Union they're talking about having a tax on stock trades of a tenth of a percentage point trades of derivatives a hundredth of a percentage point if that ends up discouraging a trade it couldn't have had much productive impact in any case so basically you would just be eliminating waste in the financial sector and potentially raising tens of billions in fact quite possibly over a hundred billion a year
0: again you're not going to get unanimity on this one. I think it's a tougher sell to the sort of the more conservative libertarian wing who is generally skeptical of, of new taxes and an attempt by the government to impose a price on something that it considers bad or dangerous. Like how bad is speculation? What is the appropriate tax? I can hear all those questions coming from a Russ Roberts. So we left it off the platform. Okay,
1: so the ones that didn't make it, free heroin, tax on lobbyists, tax on financial speculations. There was also... As we hinted at the top, one really big, meaty argument that divided these economists. And it was interesting because this argument gets to the heart of most of the fights that you see on the campaign trail between the two major candidates running for political office this year, the fight over jobs and economic growth. This was a proposal from... Robert Frank, he's a professor at Cornell, uh, described himself as liberal-leaning.
0: Yeah, and he's actually so liberal-leaning that he actually thought this was one that everybody would uh, would agree to. <laughs> you know, he's, he, he was like, you're not going to get any argument here. And he was so
1: proud. He, you, came, he walked into our interview and he said, the one thing I believe
0: everyone can agree on is this idea. Yeah. The first thing a new president should do, get into the Oval Office and say, essentially, I want to triple the size of the federal deficit – and I want to use that money for a very specific thing.
2: Well, the the American Society for Civil Engineers has identified two trillion plus dollars worth of desperately overdue infrastructure repair and maintenance projects. So so if
0: elected, I pledge to borrow two trillion dollars from the world and spend it fixing America's roads and, and ridges today.
2: Well, you can't do it in one week, uh, but you would get to work on them right away. So when I hear the number
1: $2 trillion, like it sounds amazing, but at the same time, you're like, that is incredibly difficult to spend that much money to pick projects
0: That can add up to that total. Yeah, and we tried to do this during the stimulus. Remember, the government needed to spend many hundreds of billions of dollars very quickly. They wanted to find shovel-ready projects, and those were hard to find. And then there was also a lot of debate about whether these projects were worthwhile or not, or whether they were sort of sweetheart deals or whatever. So it's hard to sort of make sure that the government is spending on the right stuff. So Robert Frank, essentially wants to take politics out of it.
1: The problem, he would say, with the stimulus was that it, it, it was way too divisive and political. So his plan is to get a room, appoint a commission, bring in Republicans and Democrats, and have them look over the engineer's list and only do the items that they can actually agree on. And the beauty, he argues, is that this saves money in the long run, because you have to do these repairs anyway. And money, money's cheap right now. He uses the example of, of Interstate 80 in Nevada.
2: The state of Nevada Department of Transportation estimates that if we fix a 10-mile stretch of that roadway, now we can do it for $6 million. if we wait just two years. The truck traffic that runs over that stretch, the frost that heaves the roadbed out further, all that's going to so increase the cost of the job that we'll spend $30 million, uh, on fixing that 10-mile stretch of roadway two years from now, when should we fix it? Given that we all agree we should fix it, uh, that's not a hard question to answer. We should fix it as soon as possible.
1: You may be completely right, and this could be the answer. But we can find economists who say this is not the answer.
2: I, I think you guys aren't doing your job if you don't force the people who say this is a bad idea to explain in plain English why they think so.
4: Um, where do I start?
1: Entering into the ring, rearing for a fight, Russ Roberts, our panel's most libertarian member. And when we told him, oh, Bob Frank has this idea that he thinks everyone will agree to, Russ Roberts sort of laughed and he started to list off the problems.
4: People like to say we have an infrastructure crisis. When you ask them what's the evidence for it, they always point to a some study from the American Society of Engineers or some other group. I've That might not be their exact name. But the people who desperately, of course, benefit and want more spending on infrastructure. So when I when the American Society of Engineers gives our infrastructure a D, I'm thinking, aren't they a little bit self-interested? Uh, yeah, they are. So it seemed like we should take these two members of our panel
0: and set up a special session just between the two of them, get them in a studio at the same time, and have them duke it out mano a mano. See if Bob could convince Russ that this
2: was a no-brainer idea.
0: Thank you guys for both of you for agreeing to do this. Bob, you've you've talked to Russ on his podcast. And
2: stuff. Yes, we've talked we've talked many times. That's right.
1: So right off the bat, it, it was clear that there is this very deep philosophical divide, this old fight that is lurking in this new proposal fight between Bob and Russ. And this old fight is over Keynesian stimulus, which is essentially can the government borrow a whole bunch of money
0: and spend it to put people to work? Right, and it's named after John Maynard Keynes, of course, a famous economist of the 20th century. And Bob thinks that yes. Keynesian stimulus works, and that is the great advantage of this plan. It is doing exactly that type of stimulus.
2: We can kill two birds with one stone. We can not only f- fix the things that need fixing, but we can put people back to work simultaneously. And it just so happens because people are out of work and the economy is in deep recession, the capital that we would need to finance the projects is cheaper than it's ever been.
0: Perhaps unsurprisingly, Russ Roberts remained unpersuaded of the benefits of Keynesian stimulus and said essentially Keynes had his big test with that big stimulus package that we passed in 2009. And what do we have to show for that?
4: I don't think there's any evidence that's reliable uh, on the effects of the stimulus spending, by the way, on job creation. Yes, many economists will argue that there is evidence that the stimulus helped make it be better than it otherwise would have been. Uh, That evidence is all based on models. It's not actually looking at what actually happened. There's no CBO estimate that actually looks at the data to evaluate whether the economy would have been worse. They've explicitly publicly admitted that that's too difficult. So it's based on existing Keynesian models, which we could debate about, but I'm skeptical of.
1: Okay, so we decided to set aside this argument about whether infrastructure building – really creates that many more jobs. And, and we looked at the other argument, though, this notion that the investment that you make now in infrastructure saves money over the long run. And this got into a pretty interesting back and forth over the role and the function of government.
2: I agree with Russ that we don't want to take the American Society of Civil Engineers opinion as the final word on that. They have an interest, obviously. But has anyone driven on the roads that we have in this country? We're the richest country in the world. We have trains on the most heavily populated cor- corridor anywhere in the world that have top speeds of 70 miles an hour. You know, we're not, we're not a third world nation. We're a fourth world nation in terms of our infrastructure. The, the whole idea of trying to economize by not doing projects that need to be done is false economy. What do, what do, what do you say to that, Russ?
0: It's better to, you know, in nine, you know, a stitch in time saves nine, you know, that, that basic we sh- idea.
4: We should be uh, investing in new weapon systems, too, because they're cheap now also.
0: Now, now Bob would say this is not a fair comparison. Um, military spending, you could argue, and military people, in fact, argue this, is not something we'll need more of in the future. So you're not saving any money by spending now since we're hoping that – expenditures as we wind down troops in Afghanistan will be less than they are today. Nobody says that about roads. We know we're going to need the roads in 10 years. If anything, they're going to be carrying more traffic. So you do save money if you invest now.
1: To which Russ said, essentially, yeah, but I
4: I still don't buy your premise. You can't just say there's $2 trillion laying around of unpicked fruit that's going to make us better off. There's just no evidence for it. I wish there were,
2: but there isn't. Okay. Again, though, the proposal was aimed specifically at that concern. It was to put uh, – let each side pick its own trusted representatives, send them into a locked room and have them emerge from the room – With an agreement on which projects are legitimate and should be done.
4: But, Bob, if that's your model of politics, let's not – why limit infrastructure spending to this great process? Let's have military spending be the same way, social security. Let's get partisans of both sides in a locked room and ask them only to pass the stuff that's good and worthwhile. Well, that's hard to agree on evidently.
1: Much like our hour with these guys – You sometimes just cannot get people to agree on things. But as we went through the hour, we saw, you know, there was there was something we could salvage from this. There was one important point that perhaps they could agree on.
0: Yeah. And their disagreement comes out of a fundamental agreement that they actually have, that our political system as it's existing right now doesn't work very well, doesn't produce very good outcomes. And what Bob says is so. Therefore, we have to circumvent the system. We have to trick it into doing the right thing with this special panel with special powers. But Russ Roberts is saying, why would you expect anything different from a panel of experts that's appointed by the same political system, which we both agree is, is broken?
4: Bob and I have an interesting difference of opinion about the efficacy of government uh, in action. Uh, I look at it, the way it is and I don't understand why we need to allocate more money given that we've already allocated more money to government. And I would suggest that to fix these crucial things, we should find other things that are not doing being done well and do less of those. That's what families do and businesses
2: do when they reach a budget constraint. Yeah, I agree with Russ. The government's bad in, in many ways. We should focus, though, not on trying to strip it down so it doesn't doesn't have the resources to do anything, but rather on trying to make it more effective so it can do those things that need to be done collectively more efficiently. And if it did those things, it would be much
4: smaller, and that would be good, and it would do the things that it should be doing well instead of poorly. And that's where I think we also agree. Uh, the things How the big the government would
2: like, be is a, is a a question to be settled by, yeah, by public input.
4: So I guess the,
1: it's fair for us to say they, they agree to disagree or or basically that in a democracy, economists don't necessarily have to agree. They aren't the ones that make the decisions, which they probably
0: thank the Lord every day they don't
1: have to. <laughs> right.
0: And And in some ways, that's what we're trying to fix with this project. We're trying to say – If there are economic opinions out there that are valid, that have the full support of everyone on this panel, let's take them to the public, to you, and see if we can persuade you. Yeah, and how do you take it to the public? You hire consultants, you
1: make ads, you do focus groups. You know, I think when we did our our presidential platform show a few weeks ago, people were like, oh, that's entertaining, that's a one off. And we're like, no, no, we're going with this. We have the ideas, we have the agreement of six economists, and so we are moving forward. We've already brought in consultants to say, listen, if these ideas are good for the economy, how do we sell them? How do we make people
0: understand the concepts behind them and and get behind them? So stay tuned as we try to get our dream platform ready for prime time, dressed up to meet the American public. As always, we welcome your questions and comments. Send them to us at planetmoney at npr.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Robert Smith. Thanks for listening.